0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from this week's episode, What Will Treatment Pathways Look Like for Nash Patients? In this conversation, Stephen Harrison and guest Dean shared their visions of how treatment guidelines might evolve for F2, F3, and F4 patients as new medications come into use over the next several years. They discussed why cirrhosis, and particularly compensated cirrhosis, constitutes a unique case while Louise Campbell and I offer the occasional question or comment. The underlying optimism of this conversation reflects Stephen's belief and comment on the podcast that after a year of negative trial results in 2019, the last two years in NASH drug development have included the stories of multiple agents and modes of action that have succeeded in phase two trials and are heading towards phase three and eventually we anticipate market. So, prepare to have your eyes open and your mind stretched. Sit back. Listen. Enjoy learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups.
1: Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, as they discuss why a strategy of escalating and de-escalating therapies might be the future for NAFLD and NASH treatment. This week, on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast.
0: This episode I'm really excited about. This stems from the last part of episode 16, which was when Mazin Les joined us, for the baby, to discuss his work on cost-effectiveness. I asked a question about the price points at which different therapy medications might be used in broader population, and Mazin suggested the idea that we might have expensive therapies for a limited period of time and then revert to diet and exercise or less expensive ones, to which Stephen said, and I quote, this could be another discussion in itself. So we scheduled one. During Nash Congress last week, Sunil Haasmey noted how important this issue might be and why it made the development development of inexpensive tests with high rox So important. He wanted to join us today. It's his first day back from vacation. He's not having the good fortune you guys are having. So he's he's loaded into meetings and couldn't make it. Let's just start with how would we treat in a world where we're going to escalate and then as patients get better, think about de-escalation as a standard part of therapy.
1: Steven and, and either one of you guys jump in first. You both raise this issue. I don't mind jumping in. You know, when you go first, you, you get to kind of free for all, right? And you go second, you have to think about something the other guy didn't say. So I'll go first. You know, I see the treatment of Nash, that landscape is is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, 2019 was really the year of negative reporting of drugs. 2020, we began to see positive readouts on early phase trials. 2021, we continue to see positive readouts on both end of treatment phase twos, interim analysis of phase twos, and more and more companies proceeding into phase three. Those that are in phase three have either faded away, which is what Sinek did, are on hold, like a RAM call, to the best of my knowledge, it's still on hold. Or they're moving forward towards completion of subpart H enrollment, which would be Madrigal's Resmeterome. So, all these drugs covering a multitude of mechanisms, there will be many that make it across the finish line, in my opinion. And then we're going to talk about combination therapies. But as it stands today, I begin to break these into two different camps. And I think I mentioned this on the podcast before there's the orals and injectables. And the injectables, I think, right now suggest that they're more potent. They're more like the hair and the tortoise in the hair race. They can delipidate livers very quickly, at least the 19s and the 21s that have reported out some of the 21s, particularly 89Bio's drug and Acaros and, and drug. Of course, aldofermin has reported both the one milligram and three milligram data, and then semaglutide and, as a GLP-1. All can work very well against NASH and its components of the NAS. Fibrosis, the GLP-1s have a bit of work to do to show me that they can improve fibrosis, but they all come at a price. You know, there's AE profiles associated with that, particularly GI tolerability issues. Now, again, we've always said, if the juice is worth the squeeze, go for it. If the view's worth the climb, climb the hill. And that's what these injectables are offering. Very potent drugs that can move the needle in a positive way. But I think they're cut out for more advanced stages of disease. We're gonna hit them hard. We're gonna hit them for a finite period of time. And then we're going to deescalate their therapy to something oral, extremely well-tolerated that they could take for a prolonged period of time. Remember, most of these people are asymptomatic and they want to remain that way. On the other hand, the oral drugs that we have marching through are also gaining in promise and efficacy as well as minimizing their side effect profiles. We used to think of the FXRs as really the potential future backbone therapy of NASH. And I think we've kind of pivoted away from that a little bit just because of some of the issues with that class of drug relative to the higher you dose, the more frequent AEs we have with LDL and pruritus. So pivoting away from that, we've got a lot of drugs advancing through phase 2b into 3, and I think are going to be effective treatments as backbone therapies and for the long run, but they're being studied more as treatment for moderate NASH, I would say F2 to to advance to F3, uh, and that's something that that those patients can be on for a while. So if you begin to talk about escalation, de-escalation, It depends on what stage of disease you're in. If you're a well-compensated F4, I believe we will continue to show data that we can reverse cirrhosis in NASH. We got a flavor of that from a fruxifermin. I think that is just the tip of the iceberg on what we're likely to see. Many of these trials are initiating in well-compensated cirrhotics, and I think we'll begin to see that needle move in a positive direction. But that's going to be hit them hard, pull them back from the edge of the cliff, and transition them over to something that not only impacts their liver, but also has a benefit extra hepatically on atherogenic lipids and glycemic control. And if you've got the holy grail of weight loss that goes along with it, that would be super. So that's my initial take. Maybe Mazen, you can tell me your thoughts. Josh, how can you add anything to that, uh, Stephen?
2: You're right. You cannot do much as the second person, especially for Stephen Harrison. Let me try to take a jab of of this after Stephen. Let me start with this. I think it's going to be an art treating the NASH patients. And I, I think I'm looking at the things very optimistically that we're going to have multiple drugs, that they're going to be approved. And I'm looking at the type two diabetes world that we're going to have multiple medications that we're going to choose from. The less optimistic group I have hope for as of today, I hope it's going to change in the future, is the compensated cirrhotic. So I'm actually going to break this field into multiple things. We, the hepatologists and the endocrinologists, will be the people who are going to manage these patients because of the complexity of making the decision between two things, the medications and the NITs. If you end up with one medication, you're going to have to make a complex decision on combination of NITs or the other way around. And you're likely going to end up with combo combo at one point. So I'm going to break it into F4, F3, and F2. You're also going to have injectables and orals. And you're going to also have special populations, meaning people that they are lean. So you're not going to lose weight loss drug with lean people like semaclutidite. You cannot use it with a BMI of 25, for instance. You're going to have people with IBS, GI side effects. A lot of our medications, they have GI side effects. So you, you're going to think differently in these patients. But let me just give examples start with the f3 groups and before i start there also we have to think also about the heart because some people might have underlying heart disease or not but we also have to think about reversing any potential future cardiovascular uh, side effects because we have to keep in mind that these patients also die from the heart. So if I have an F3 patient to in my mind, this is kind of like a time bomb, at least as a hepatologist, I'm biased not to get to F4. And I want to reverse this patient at least to F2 or F1 as soon as I can. So in my mind, if I get such a patient, I want to use use anti-fibrotic as fast as I can. I want more data on the FGFs, but they look promising. Lanifibrinor looks like it can hit multiple things at the same time, maybe fibrosis and cardiovascular profile. But maybe this is a group that I can use a combination from the get-go, maybe FGFs and Lani, and try to reverse them back and leave them alone, maybe with Lani on the long term. So I continue that Lani alone that will continue to take care of Nash as well as the cardiovascular profile or also as a maintenance, you can continue a resmitter on these patients. But I want to hit fibrosis early on as much as I can on these patients. Also, these F3 patients, those are the group that I can, at least for now, based on the data, I can worry about SEMA early on less. I'm not going to jump necessarily and use SEMA on these people early on. I want to reverse fibrosis. At one point after I reverse fibrosis, I might use SEMA in the future two years, three years for a one year period of time, especially if it's expensive to reverse their weight and drop that 16 percent or 20 percent over one year. Maybe the insurance would not allow me more than that and then continue another backbone therapy. So you see here there's a lot of complexity, but also some deep thinking and art into it. Versus if I go to the F2 patient, you can... start with SEMA can be a first-line therapy. And for a year, they drop weight. You have some positive effects on the heart. You can later on switch to resmitterum or linifibrinol, or you can start with linifibrinol all along on these patients. So I think it's going to be different pockets of patients. If I go to the compensated cirrhosis, the data, I, I'm waiting for the data to show me, and Stephen alluded to some of these data that we started seeing on the compensated cirrhosis. What I think I want to hit these patients from the get-go to start with, probably too anti-fibrotic reverse that and keep going so this is kind of like he and I were doing like crystal ball for the future but I think it's going to vary per patient fibrosis stage and underlying condition
0: thanks both of you for great places to start Martin you and Stephen just used a phrase that I don't think I've heard used on this podcast I've heard used for years everywhere else which is backbone therapy and I'm wondering if in fact we're going to wind up with a backbone therapy in this disease or will we wind up with a definition of what would make something an appropriate backbone, but the specific nature of disease in F2 versus F3 versus F4 means there may be a different backbone at each point in therapy.
2: I was told often, yeah, I get myself in trouble, but my unconscious said that word backbone, and let me stick to it for a second. I'll just give the example of Lenny Febrenor. A lot of our patients that have fibrosis are diabetics. We have to see more data. If Lenny does the trick for type 2 diabetes and lipid and the heart, it might stay as a backbone therapy. Not all drugs will stay as backbone therapy probably for a long time.
1: The good news, Mason, is there are 33 bones in the back. So you you could have 33 different backbone drugs for NASH. Only 24 are movable.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back on Wednesday, May 26th, to preview International Nash Day. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.